Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a time in worship together. Folks, our God is a giver, and our God is good, and our God is good to his people. He is a constant provider, he's a constant giver, and he gives so much grace, so much mercy, so many good gifts to his children. Let us always remember that and be thankful to the one who gives good gifts. Let's pray. Dear God of heaven and earth, the one who knows us completely, the one who has full knowledge, you're omniscient, and the one who is fully present, that you are within earshot of each one of us, each one of your children, each one of the people on earth who do not know you yet, or do not acknowledge you, you're right there within earshot. All of us have access to God, and especially to your children because of what Jesus Christ has done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You have made the way back to relationship with God the Father. Give us eyes to see, Lord, you and eyes to see your word in this world, to pray and to invite the Holy Spirit to fill up in us so that we do not fill up ourselves with things other than God, with things lesser than God, with things that have no eternal value, or with things which are sin. Our culture chases after these things. Let us not do that because we are to be holy and set apart as you are holy. Pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Last week, we read about the generations since Adam and Eve, spanning not too many generations in number, but a huge number of years. In one chapter, in chapter five of Genesis, spanned, what was it, over 1,500 years of human history. And we talked about the importance of family, of community, of togetherness, which is why we have the family, or at least one of the primary reasons why we have the family, and the importance of worshiping God together. So the reason that we have togetherness, togetherness as humans, togetherness as brothers and sisters, as friends, is to worship God together. It is to encourage each other to worship God. It is to exemplify worship of God so that we can be an example to our brothers and sisters in the faith and to those outside of the faith. 
so they can look and see that we are not acting like the world, that we're different. There's something different. There's something attractive. There's something compelling about our God. And that is in the worship together of our God. See, God is the great uniter. There's so much division in our world. There's so much division in our country. There's so much division within each state here in America. And there is a satanic agenda being pushed and pushed and pushed. And it goes through the lives of these people bringing this division. I'm not saying everyone who speaks out is specifically being led by Satan. I am saying it is without a doubt that Satan is involved in the great pagan divisive influence in our American culture today. I feel it so heavily in my heart. And I feel like that is a telling from the Holy Spirit. And as you recognize the things that are of God, you also recognize the things that are of Satan. And we've talked about a number of these things so far just in this series since January 1st, that Satan is a thief who steals, kills, and destroys. So if you see someone who is stealing, killing, and destroying, they're doing the things that Satan does. They are acting in the ways of Satan. If someone's filled with violence, then they are acting in the ways of Satan. If someone's filled with anger and acts on that anger, they're doing the things that Satan would do. So we can see this. God calls us instead to come out, to be set apart from the world, to be holy, which is what that means, to be like God to obey God's commandments, to worship God, to do life and live a lifestyle that is different than the world, that does not value the things of this world, that does not act in the ways of this world, that does not speak in the ways of this world. And it is in this call of God to worship him, to live in family and in friendship, and in genealogy to pass on to the next generation, this lineage of faith, this very important tradition of faith, this tradition of worshiping God together, that here in chapter six today, we see a different culture of behavior on the earth. So if you have your Bibles, please join me. Genesis chapter six, starting at verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man 
whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a culture of not only unbelief in God, but something far worse than that. As if that were not bad enough, we see something far worse. Because you can be indifferent, and you can be not divisive, not offensive, not violent, not aggressive. You still need to get right with God, but this is not what we see here. Let's look at this. Any they chose. I think this is very plainly sinful, and I think this is aggressive. This is not a prudent, practical, respectful development of a man and woman relationship times however many people that were on the earth. Let's read this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Folks, there's an unknown descriptor for sons of God. You probably heard multiple different commentaries and multiple different, uh, perhaps, teachings on this. There's also an unknown exact descriptor for daughters of man. I would take that at face value, personally. Perhaps the sons of God were those who were in the faithful family line, i.e. their grandparents, perhaps their parents, were faithful in the line of faith in God, but these were giving in to sin and living a lifestyle of sin instead. Perhaps the daughters of man were either those who projected their appearance in a sinful way, or maybe they were just simply victims of the men who quote-unquote took them. See, I think this is sinful, and here's why. We had previously read in chapter 5 about the generations who on average were living about 500, 600, 700, 800, 900 years. But this is what it says in verse 3. We just read verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This is a change. Obviously so. And in the lineage, in the chronology of our Bible here in chapter 6, this is a result from verses 1 and two, that when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Obviously, there is physical attraction in terms of a man and a woman dating, engagement, marriage. It's interesting, though, in a particular note that the scripture mentions this here because we don't see that mentioned in scripture very often considering all the generations and all the relationships of the people in the bible 
But one particularly disturbing verse is 2b, or the second half of 2, that says, and they took as their wives any they chose. Folks, if you think about it, any they chose, I don't know, maybe on face value, you wouldn't think much of that. You would think, sure, a man pursues a woman in dating or a woman pursues a man in dating. I mean, it should be the man, but obviously that is a joint venture in dating, 50-50, the man leading, as he's called by God, and the woman also of like mind participating in the dating prudent practical relationship. But I think this any they chose is a distortion. Because dating, engagement, and marriage are all to be lived and participated in the context of biblical community. And this whole description here of any they chose sounds either forced, aggressive, or just not as patient and prudent. It sounds like it's kind of a selfish, well, it does sound like a selfish, domineering type language, that they're taking any woman they chose. Rather, God doesn't call his people to that. God, God calls his people to have respect consideration, and to be under God's leadership, God's headship with regard to pursuing any woman. And that is only to be done in that relationship, in that introduction even, in a holy biblical manner, which, yes, includes the counsel of wise men or wise women in the faith. I'm not saying you bring a wise man in the faith or a wise woman in the faith the first time that you say hi to a woman to springboard a potential dating relationship, what I'm saying is even in dating, it's extremely important to have wise biblical men, wise biblical women giving input, giving advice, giving consideration that you are deferring to their advice, that you are being patient and you are being prudent to examine the scriptures, to test and approve your potential spouse, and to be patient, not to run into any relationship. This says they took as their wives. There is a taking. That's a very dynamic action there. It doesn't say they waited patiently, that they pursued a relationship, or even that they married, which is has language of a joining together. This is a taking. Perhaps that's not what I interpret that to be, but this is my interpretation. So in God's view, though, in this interpretation, it's not to be in any they chose or a taking, but rather a man shall leave his father and his mother, which is also a form of community, by the way, and hold fast to his wife, which is faithfulness, and they shall become one flesh. This was Genesis 2, verse 24, but this is not the language we see here at the start of chapter 6. Why else is it important to involve wise counsel in any serious relationship? 
And I would say even a informal or the start of a dating relationship in the church. Well, let's look at scripture. Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. How important is pursuing someone toward engagement and marriage? That's a pretty darn important plan in your life. About Proverbs 1, 8 and 9, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. I don't know that we would say it quite that way this day and age. But garland is an adorning. It is an affirmation. It is something beautiful. And the same with pendants for your neck. It is jewelry. But in their day, that was even more a sign of beauty or affirmation or confirmation. Something else that's wrong about a dating relationship where it's only the two of you, where it's not under the, the community, under the umbrella of biblical community, either in your church or maybe perhaps not specifically in your individual church, though I do think that's also important. And if you and she are at two different Bible-believing churches, I think both churches, i.e. the small social circles within each church should be involved in friendship and wisdom and insight and encouragement, uh, both. Because it's important to be open. Here's the problem when you're just dating, when two people are dating, but they don't hang out with each other's friends, when they don't hang out with each other, hang out, that's such an informal word, when they don't participate in each other's biblical community, i.e., attending each other's church together, not all the time, but at least on a semi-regular basis, you become selfish. You get a distorted view. The problem with not having others involved or speaking into your relationship or accountability for your relationship or guiding you towards God in your relationship or telling you to take it slow in your relationship or telling you to be pure in your relationship with each other, inevitably, pride escalates for both of you. And then the relationship is only founded on the two of you. You both may be Christians, but the relationship gets distorted. That you built the whole relationship now just on the two of you. So it doesn't have... Think about a tree with its roots. It doesn't have roots going every other direction or all directions at the base of the tree. The root system is very limited. And you want a really strong tree for a marriage. You want a tree that's till death do us part, to the glory and honor of God and the well-being and the edification and the encouragement and the faith building of each other. And you have that when you involve other people in the relationship intentionally. So it's not because the church expects you to do this. 
or that Bryce expects you to do this. It's because you want to glorify God. It's because you want to honor God and glorify God even more than the person you're dating, even more than your fiance, even more than your wife or your husband. You want to glorify God. So if you didn't do it that way when you were dating or when you were engaged and you're married, today, seek out biblical community within your church. Get other men and women, godly men, godly women to act as brothers and sisters in Christ in a holy and prudent and patient way involved in your relationship. That you're meeting together with another couple or if you are the man, then you have other men at the church and you can get plugged into each other's lives so that also while they can encourage you and hold you accountable, you can encourage them and help hold them accountable. Iron sharpens iron for the glory of God, that our relationships may reflect the beauty of God and that we might give deference to God's glory, and not be building anything on our glory, even if we were ignorant of that. And what about the first relationship? What about the first human dating relationship, which was very short dating period, and then we're married, Adam and Eve? Well, there was only Adam. So before the relationship, and then God created Eve, this is chapter 2. Verse 22, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God was the community of Adam and Eve's relationship. God closed the circle in the relationship. See, our relationships are to be in a community of God's people and of God. God, the primary one there. That even in your relationship with someone else, and if it is just the two of you, that you are giving deference and you are giving acclamation and you are giving obedience to God's word in your relationship. It's really important that the two of you in your dating relationship, in your engagement, and in your marriage are in God's word. That you are in prayer. Because your dating relationship, oh, that's not about you. Your marriage, it's not about you. It is, but that's secondary. Your relationship with another human being is really about God. It's about God's glory. It's about magnifying God. It's about obeying God in your relationship, but primarily individually. As an individual to God, it's about submitting to God's authority that when you're in a relationship with another person, be it a good friendship, be it marriage, what have you, unless you're submitting to God's authority, then you, by default, become the authority. And that's extremely dangerous and shaky ground. God wants you to submit your relationships to God's authority. Because God created your relationship also. And regarding physical attraction, it does talk about here, 
it says the daughters of man were attractive. Again, it seems like that's suggesting something more than just physical attraction. But I will say this about physical attraction. There is much more to marriage than that. Oh, and that's not eternal. So let's talk about the model that we have for dating encouragement. Uh, excuse me, engagement, encouragement also. Dating, engagement, and marriage. And this is a model which was the model then in chapter 6. In that day and age, even though it was not being practiced, and this is still the model today. Oh, and it's the same model from chapter 2 with Adam and Eve. The model has not changed, and that's because the model is God. God set forth how we are to be in God community, biblical community, church community with other people. The Bible talks a lot about, this is in Ephesians, the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That the wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord, for this is glorifying to God. Now the church, how the body of believers is the bride of Christ. This is all analogous of God first, and then God's relationship with mankind. So this example that we have in marriage, or dating, or any kind of joining together, is when a sinner comes together with a sinner, and ideally, this is after both are saved in faith, by sur submitting themselves, surrendering themselves, to Jesus Christ. But if it's not, and if it's two sinners getting together with no faith, then by hearing the word of God, let them too submit their lives to Christ and forever be changed to worship God. Because marriage is a joining together for the glory of God. And of course, there are millions and millions and billions, I'm sure, of marriages in this world that do not profess faith in God. But I honestly believe, biblically speaking, this is why we have marriage. It is also for the reason that God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will create a helper for him. And God did not leave the two individuals as two individuals, but it says he brought her, the woman, to the man. God wants his children to be joined together for as many as have been appointed to be joined together. This is a reflection of God in marriage. And like Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we image God more in our marriage, in our marriages, when we obey his commandments when we submit to his authority, when we love and honor our wives as Christ did the church, when the wives honor and love and respect their husbands as the church should do to God. And we have God's word to remind us how to do all these things. Back to Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. While it is true, folks, that wickedness did not inhabit every single person on the earth, because we see in verse 8, Noah found favor. But what we do see here in verse 5 is a devastating descriptor to summarize the cultural behavior turned cultural norm now on the earth. They quote, every intention of the thoughts of the heart of mankind was only evil continually. Mankind had become something God never wanted them to become. Doesn't mean God didn't know God was omniscient. Doesn't mean that he didn't know that they wouldn't. But they become something God never wanted them to become. It wasn't just that mankind had sin. It was that sin was the habit and lifestyle of almost every single person on the earth. So much so that we see it here, verse 6, that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God's creation, God's creation of mankind was to live in relationship with God. And not only had mankind become indifferent to God, but I alluded to that earlier, it wasn't indifference, it was that mankind had sought out sin, that mankind had chosen violence, and we'll get to that, and was committing violence in the world that he was seeking out a lifestyle of wickedness. The world had descended into chaos, and there wasn't much left we can infer here. Can you imagine a world so far gone? Can you imagine a world so corrupt, so violent, without regard to the law, with no regard for God, and because God is a just God, the Bible makes that explicitly clear. That means that there must be consequences for destructive choices, for going against God's law. I what, what <laughs> sin is choosing something, okay? It chooses to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. 10. It chooses opposition to God. God said, because he is just, he would destroy all humanity and all living creatures on the earth. This chapter 6, verse 7, is the foreshadow. God created the earth and God created mankind to have a relationship with him. God is so loving and God is so patient. And because God is so loving and so patient and because he is just, there is reward for honoring him, and there is a consequence for opposing him. You cannot oppose God and expect not to be punished. There's choices for every decision. For every action, there's a reaction. For good or for bad. And I think one of the greatest lies of Satan is that you, the rhetorical you, or you individually, you, can make any decision you want. 
in your life. It only affects you. Call it your truth. But it doesn't make any difference in the grand scheme of things, so just do whatever you want. The lie is that you can just do whatever makes you happy or makes you rich or makes you popular or makes you who you want to be. And during all of this, during the lies of Satan, during the ways that people selfishly choose to live their lives or to go in opposition to God, God is watching and God is measuring them. And God measures us too in the church. And God is the singular judge of the world. Just because a man doesn't think he is accountable to anyone does not mean he is correct. Just because he's so full of himself in his own mind, he's filled up to the very brim with pride, he defines himself however he defines himself, he values whatever he chooses to value, he pursues women however he wants to pursue women, he conducts business however he wants to conduct business, that doesn't mean he's right before God. And God is watching. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Naked is an interesting word this day and age. Maybe it was back then too. Adam and Eve were technically naked in the Garden of Eden before they knew the term naked. And then when confronted by God, he asked them where they learned that term. It was only after they sinned against God that they were filled with shame and sewed leaves together to cover their bodies. When a toddler runs around the house without clothes, they don't know, or maybe they do know that they're naked, but they don't care. When we grow up, we clothe ourselves because it's right and appropriate to do in a society. And what the author of Hebrews is addressing here I think is the idea of nakedness and clothing with regard to how each person tries to identify themselves or attach themselves to an image. If you're tough, think like if you're a tough guy or a tough girl, then you won't be pushed around. So you develop this persona that you're tough. If you're athletic, then you can define yourself as an athlete. You're sporty, you're jock, so you seem cool or strong. If you're rich, then you can exude all the material possessions that esteem your wealth to the world. Scripture says, none of that matters to God. Because at the end of our lives on earth, every single human on earth will have to give an account to God. And we will be there before God as though we are naked i.e. with no image or identity to justify us or protect us from God. And really, it's not only at the end of our lives, but even this moment, we are all, like Hebrews says, all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees us for who we are inside right this minute. So is our mind and our heart on the inside surrender to God's authority, loving 
God, worshiping God? Or are we like those in chapter 6, living in not just indifference, though that's also bad, but in outright and pervasive opposition to God by chasing sin? God, who is the one judge of the world. And yes, it is that all mankind have sinned. So in a just ruling, all of us deserve death because that is the penalty for sin. It's death. But what do we see here in verse 8? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why did Noah find favor? A few things. One, because God chooses. And I'm quite confident because his heart was not only toward God, leaning towards God, but because he was focused on God. And we'll see this more as we get into chapter 6 next week, or next time, rather. But this is what it says about Noah. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, that's what we previously read in chapter 5 about Enoch, that he walked with God. So we know Noah had a relationship with God. Those who walk with God are not just titled whatever religious title you want to give someone, whatever religious title you want to affix to your own identity. Something totally different to have a relationship or like scripture says, walk with God. A walk is steady. A walk is constant. And a walk is continuous. When someone walks with God, this is a lifestyle. So different than the lifestyle that we're seeing here at the start of chapter 6, that there was increasing corruption on the earth. We see the opposite of that in someone who walks with God. So what can we learn from this today? It is the same call from God to have a personal relationship with him that we saw in chapter 1, that we saw in chapter 2 with God's commandment, that we saw in chapter 3, though our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell short of believing and loving and trusting and obeying God. God calls us now, today, again, to have a personal relationship with me, to walk with me, to have a steady, continual, constant walk with God. Pursue the Lord. Everyone's pursuing something. Pursue the Lord. Worship the Lord. Everybody's worshiping something or multiple somethings. Worship the Lord. He is the one who is worthy. We can all chase things in this life that have no value. Do not chase things of no value. Do not chase things of no eternal value. If you stop and think about it for a second, and we all struggle in many ways, it's easy to give in to anger. It's easy to give in to jealousy. It's easy to give in to sexuality. 
It's easy to give into greed. But because it's easy is why we, as God's children, must fight against it. You must love God and hate sin. I must love God and hate sin. We must be on our guard. We must remember daily to be sober-minded and be watchful to know the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's 1 Peter 5.8. And what does that make me think of? That makes me think of, actually, this in chapter 6. Verse 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness was great, the wickedness of man, sorry, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. We're going to continue next time in greater detail, but let me fast forward a few verses here. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah in verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. The language in 1 Peter 5.8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, tells me that it's not only, the description of Satan is not only John 10.10, 10, that he steals, kills, and destroys. So it's also true in similar language, but he seeks it out. He prowls around. Who prowls a predator? A predator prowls around like a lion, roaring lion. That means he's loud. He promulgates whatever he's promulgating, and he does it loud and obvious. And seeking someone to devour. What does a lion do when he devours his prey? Well, he kills it, so that's a John 10.10. He destroys it, that's a John 10.10 link there. That's what Satan seeks to do to anyone and everyone. He's violent. So when you see violence, this is an echo of the ways of Satan. And it may be influenced by Satan directly. And we must be on our guard. We must remember daily to be sober-minded and be watchful. Not only to be peacemakers, which is the opposite of violence, but to be those who obey the commandments of God, because God says, those who love me obey my commandments. To pursue the Lord, to worship the Lord, the one who is worthy. And when we sin, to be quick to repent to God. Don't delay. Don't delay. It is a pattern of sin which will draw you away from the Lord and toward a lifestyle of sin, and it hardens your heart toward the Lord. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Even in the days of Ephesians 5, again, the world was corrupt. There was corruption on the earth. There were evil people doing evil things on the earth. 
And Ephesians 5 continues, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It is a pattern of faithfulness which draws you in to God, close to God, to abide with God, to walk with God, and He with you. And you will find no greater joy on earth, folks, than a close abiding relationship with God. He will lead you in his ways. He will guide you in his ways. He will teach you in his ways. And he will impart to you filling of the Holy Spirit to live in the ways of Christ, to live in the ways of God the Father, to want to obey his law to have the power to obey his law and to deny the things of the world for the glory of God and for your joy. Because again, you will find no greater joy on earth than a close abiding relationship with God. Let's pray. Great and mighty God, the one who sees and knows, the one judge of all men. You see and you know and you measure the actions and the thoughts of mankind. And at the end of this age, at the end of our life, when we face the judgment throne of God, for your children, Jesus will be standing and saying, he is mine, she is mine. And to those who do not know you, they will be condemned because they harden their heart to not know you, to not submit to you, to not glorify you, to not worship you. Oh God, let us live as your children in light of that day because of what Christ has done for us. Let that directly impact how we live our lives because we want to glorify you. God, where we have been weak, let us be strong in you. In the name and in the power of Jesus Christ, let us be strong in you for the glory of God and in our joy, because we want to be joyful, because we want to be joy-filled in a dark world, and you alone do that. For the glory of God alone, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we talk about Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior.